It is not unreasonable to believe that eventually we will develop robotics and machine learning to a point when it will be possible to replace human laborers. Already we have replaced humans on factory assembly lines and in factories. Chances are that you have even spoken to a robot recently. When was the last time you called a major corporation and spoke immediately to a human? When was the last time you went to the bank and got cash handed to you by a human? How many times have you used the self-checkout at the grocery store or ordered pizza online? When was the last time you handed a letter to a postal worker instead of writing an email? When was the last time you stopped to ask directions rather than check your GPS? Are there any police officers out there? When was the last time you mailed fingerprint cards to the FBI for manual lookup? How many of you had your soda mixed by a man behind the counter last time you got lunch? How many of you went to a CPA for your taxes this year? How many of you used an online tax service? How many architects still build foam models rather than 3D renders? How many machinists still manually control their lathes rather than use a multi-axis CNC machine? How many of your spy planes have a human pilot in them today? How many of your drones are flying on computer control? What happens when your technology is capable of replacing you? This is one of mankind's favorite fears, the robot uprising. Evolution has made us good at fearing everything, everywhere, pretty much all the time. In reality, there will almost certainly be no robot uprising. But what about the singularity? Machine learning one, not the astrophysics one. The singularity people imagine would probably come and go faster than one might expect. We can imagine humanity competing with a race of sentient machines because our evolution happens so slowly that there is time to fight over resources. If the machines are becoming asymptotically more intelligent, we are almost immediately irrelevant in such a profound way that I cannot possibly imagine it. Still though, not going to happen. Not from the type of progress I want to talk about. I'm talking about the type of advancement I described in the beginning of this podcast. Complex machines capable of replacing human laborers. How will we react to that world? After high school and while I was an undergraduate, I worked full-time at a hotel to pay my tuition and bills. I stood at the front desk and checked people in and out, eight hours a day for five years. Considering we didn't get holidays off, that's around 1,300 business days, more than 10,000 man-hours. I was paid for that time, but to be completely honest, it would have been far wiser for them to purchase a robot to replace me. Just like the bank, an ATM could easily have done my job. Insert credit card, receive room key. This is exactly the scenario people get hung up on. If they had replaced me with a machine, how would I have paid for school? First off, that's a valid question. 
second, let me tell you why it's also a stupid question. This is going to be hard for most of you out there, but imagine that machines really can do all the programmable jobs. All the service jobs, all the diagnostic jobs, mechanics, salespeople, doctors, stenographers, taxi drivers, pilots, miners, fishermen, loggers, farmers, linemen, accountants, real estate agents, waitstaff, hotel clerks. You get the idea. If you can picture that world, you will immediately notice that almost everyone, every, every human, is unemployed. And that, listeners, is such an amazingly, unimaginably, stupidly good thing that I'm going to have to go back 12,000 years or so in order to tell you about the last time that something like this happened. Sometime around 200,000 years ago, modern humans appeared in Africa. They were just like you and me in terms of shape and intelligence. This is our transition from the caveman-looking museum exhibit, Homo sapiens adultu, to the shape we are today, Homo sapiens sapiens. I'm sure that you are familiar with these guys. This is the time when humans were hunter-gatherers, wandering the world in a continual search for food and shelter. Their ancestors had been using the same stone tools to do the same hunting, the same gathering, for millions of years. We kept doing more of the same for another 188,000 years, after becoming the species we are today. These people had the same brain as you and I, the same type of thoughts and feelings. They fought and loved, went hungry and ate too much. They enjoyed sitting by a fire and weathering long, cold nights. They worried for their children and bickered over tribal politics. They carried stone-tipped spears and knives. They slept in tents and huts made from hide, stone, wood, and bones. They had distinct cultures, art, and ritual practices. Their lives were certainly harder but not much different than our own. This isn't theoretical. These people left behind art and tools and traces of buildings. I would like to point out one more time that we lived this way for around 188,000 years. But Things never stay the same forever. Change always comes. That change came around 12,000 years ago, in the form of the Holocene extinction. This is when we took our first step into a new age, and it is laughable how similar the conversations of the time must have been to our own. For thousands of years, humans had been hunting the mammoth. They ate its meat, turned its hide into a textile, and used its bones to build and to make tools. We loved the mammoth. It was basically the Walmart of the Ice Age. 
everything you needed in one giant animal. Things must have seemed great right up until the end. There was an endless supply of mammoths, and we were very good at hunting them. Who could ask for more? As it turns out, 12,000 years ago, we were not very good at conservation or protecting the environment. Much like the American buffalo, we likely hunted the mammoth into extinction. This may not seem like a big deal, since we're here today, but it was a pretty big deal. When we killed off the mammoths, humanity began the process we now refer to as anthropogenic global warming. Wait, wait, wait. Global warming is caused by cars, right? What are we talking about 12,000 years ago? What? Deep breaths. Global warming is caused by an accumulation of various greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which increase the trapped infrared radiation. This is the result of a differential transparency of the atmosphere to solar radiation and infrared radiation. Did you hear anything about cars in there? Nope. It is easy to see how the carbon emissions from burning fossil fuels are a part of that process, though, I hope. The following should not minimize the changes that we are causing today, as they are orders of magnitude greater than our ancestors were capable of, but it's important to realize how long we have been at the process of altering our planet. How does the extinction of the mammoths contribute to global warming? The answer is not as complex as you might think, actually. Mammoths and other megafauna were critical in the maintaining of grasslands. These grasslands covered huge swaths of land, including Siberia, Beringia, and North America. When the mammoths and other megafauna started to disappear, so did the grasslands. The loss of the mammoths allowed birch trees to sprout up in place of the grass. Imagine a birch forest without end. A forest that covered Siberia, Beringia, and North America. Remnants of this trans-Pacific forest still remain. Great swaths of Siberia and portions of North America remain forested in birch. Like any other, this ancient forest went through cycles of burning and regrowth. As many of you have heard in recent decades, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. Likewise, many of you are sure to understand that burning wood releases carbon dioxide. Burning any carbon-based fuel source releases carbon dioxide as a byproduct of combustion. This goes for wood, coal, charcoal, oil, gasoline, diesel, natural gas, or methane, propane, butane, pentane, hexane, any carbon-based energy source. Imagine millions of acres of forest burning, wildfires with the potential to spread for thousands and thousands of miles. Imagine smoke and ash filling the air year in and year out. 10 years, 20, 100, 1,000. Can you picture the cycle for 5,000 years? Can you imagine 
the impact this has over 12,000 years. This is how the much-argued-over Anthropocene began, the epoch of Earth's history defined by the measurable global impact which our species has had, especially on ecosystems. I will not insist on the validity of the Anthropocene as a defining term, but I do believe it is important to recognize that we are capable of the types of changes this term defines. By intent or otherwise, our actions have had long-reaching consequences. The end result of our actions are not yet known to us. We have spent only the last few centuries engaging in what we now define as scientific investigation. Using the scientific method, we're able to test the validity of the guesses we make about the way the world works. Those guesses become models, theories, and sometimes laws. They are always up for debate, if measurable and repeatable evidence is presented. Back to our original narrative, we must now try to picture the world that our ancestors lived in. The world was not so small as it is today, but across the globe there would have been wandering tribes, groups of men and women toting children and elderly along with them, searching for enough resources to survive. Every day would have been spent gathering wild fruits, nuts, berries, and edible plants. Long, hard hours would have been spent hunting for a food source that was dwindling. The climate was shifting for reasons unknown to these people. The mammoths were vanishing, as were the familiar plants of the grassland. How many political debates must have been held? Fights over the best course of action to protect the population. How many would choose to cull the unproductive? How many would fight to feed everyone regardless of their productive capacity? No doubt both solutions were put to the test by various groups. The sick, the elderly, the mentally ill, the socially outcast. They may have been discarded by some and aided by others. It is vitally human to see the world this closely to struggle or fail to see the larger motif. Above all, there would have been a fundamentally divisive debate over the strategy to find food. Two big options. Do we wander farther and longer, as we have always done, looking for the ever-dwindling megafauna? Or do we make hunting secondary to the burgeoning art of domestication? To hunt farther and longer, a group must be light and lean. There can be little time or energy wasted on anything but the task at hand. To attempt domestication of the plants and animals is risky as well. A single bad crop or a plague would mean death to everyone in your tribe. This was not an easy choice to make, and most certainly was not as binary a choice as I am making it seem. To us today, it must seem an obvious decision. Farming is the key to building a thriving civilization. But is it really that simple? It is easy to assume that humanity made the right choice. 
that we as a whole chose the wiser course of action. How noble is man that he has adopted this new technological paradigm. This type of thinking is unabashedly fallacious. The only reason that the farming trend continued is that it worked. Everyone who chose to continue the older trend of hunting and gathering eventually died out or joined more agricultural groups. Humanity was short-sighted and stubborn, and many people suffered and died as a result. We made it through, but only by brute force. Certainly, there were a few forward-thinking humans around to create new choices for groups to make, but the groups themselves, like today, were certainly myopically oriented. It is important to realize the difference, as the former way of seeing things is revisionist and completely unhelpful as a learning tool. It took many thousands of years for the new technology called agriculture to change the world, but the change was dramatic. Humanity made the leap from wanderers to builders. Suddenly, the vast majority of the population found itself with leisure time. No longer was every single day and hour a struggle for basic survival as it had been for the prior 180,000 years. What would that mean for us? What happens when suddenly not everyone has to work 100% of the time? It is easy to fear such a change. As animals, we are naturally selfish, or at least aware of the selfish nature of others. This makes us pragmatic about how our societies deal with changes to the status quo. As is often the response to socialism by those who have always lived entirely by their own means, this system is deemed unfair. As a society evolves around agriculture and shies away from the purely self-sufficient model, what happens? What happened to us is the real question here. Did we all die? Did agriculture fall out of practice? A beautiful dream, but just not practical in the real world? Obviously not. It is possible to deem all work equally weighted as does a communistic system, but this is not what happened over the long term with agriculture. As a way to balance the relative worth of different types of labor, we created economies. Anarchy did not reign. We did not all become communists. Our basic fears did not come true at the dawn of the agricultural age. We as a species simply adapted to a new way of living. It took a long time and a lot of work, but in the end it allowed us to progress. With agricultural stability and a larger population supporting an economy, we developed new technologies at an astounding rate. With time on their hands, the majority of the population was able to educate themselves. Certainly not to any great level and mass, but the difference between an education provided by a small tribe that spends its days hunting and the information flow possible in a town, city, or along a trade route is vast. Civilization as we know it had now begun. <laughs>